Welcome back to another episode of the Mac and D podcast. How are you doing, Jimmy D? I'm doing well, my friend. It's I'd say is honestly, it's been a pretty great week for for sports fans in general. Uh, cold weather made it easy to stay inside and just watch basketball all weekend. Free agency, you know, usually that bump is just the first week and it's a lot of nothing. But really, we had a ton of free agency news over the week. And, um, you know, St. Patrick's Day was exciting for a lot of people, especially those of us in St. Louis. Um, but yeah, I mean, just really good for sports, good for, for living. It's been it's been a fun week. Yeah, it's been a great week also for my sports teams. I don't know how or why this has been happening, but a lot of the time I pick my teams based off of them being underdogs. I'm 100% a martyr fan. I love when teams are down and I can kind of ride that journey to being back. But now we're kind of on top of the world. Like the Lions, which we'll get into later, had a great week in free agency. Now they are expected to win the NFC North next year. Creighton Blue Jays, my favorite college basketball team, just made their second Sweet 16 in three years, which we'll also get into in a bit. Like, I'm on top of the world right now. It actually feels kind of nice not to be a fan of the downtrodden team and, like, actually have some success happening. So it's been a great week. Hopefully we just keep the good times rolling and we just have a great season. So, But got to start with the biggest story of the past week, and that is Aaron Rodgers going on the Pat McAfee show. So what were your takeaways of this appearance from Aaron Rodgers? Yeah, he came off incredibly douchey, which wasn't surprising, but like more so than usual. So that part was definitely tough. But, uh, you know, it, it was kind of funny that we said, like, you know, to your point, you were always like, oh, he's going to be a jet. That just makes the most sense. I was always like, I just don't think he'll allow it to happen because he doesn't want to follow Brett Favre's trajectory to a T. Um, I, I don't know. It's, there's, I think that the part I loved was when he just took a shit on Shefty and was like, yeah, he, he texted me. I told him to lose my number. So that made me laugh pretty good. But at the same time, I feel like Shefty was kind of right in the sense that it does feel like the Jets have a list of players Aaron Rodgers wants and they're going out and acquiring those guys because otherwise they would probably already have Aaron Rodgers. He said it was the Packers digging in. Um, I don't I don't know. I mean, there's a whole lot of we don't know and you just kind of have to take his word as gospel, which I, I think is probably about half right. You know, I'm sure he's more than happy to spin it to try to give himself the most positive light. It was neat to see just in general, like it's, it's cool to have athletes have their own say, you know, I, I talked to you all the time about how it was just really annoying that, that Shafty like stole Tom Brady's ability to say, Hey, I'm retiring, which, which felt gross. So like to have athletes get to say their own big moves. I, I definitely like that a lot. But uh, when we look at the football side of it, the biggest head scratcher to me, and I know I texted you about this quite a bit is like everything about the Jets screamed quarterback like we're a quarterback away from being a true contender right like that was their their problem was their offense couldn't move the ball well for some reason Rodgers is like hey get all of my guys that I like on offense so we can run this back and it's like hey buddy the the Packers didn't lose games last year because their defense they lost games because the offense physically could not score points so I don't know why the Jets are bending over backwards to get Lazard and you know potentially Robert Tunyon like you know, get OBJ because it, it's apparent he wants to have OBJ or, or something along those lines. Like, I don't know why we're they're going all over to to get the the Packers offense of last year because I, I don't know who that is enticing to. Um, so we'll see. You know, it'd be hilarious if they do everything they can to appease Rodgers and then they just look like last year's Packers. 
which is I think maybe my dream scenario to watch the Jets just just really drop the bag on this one. Um, but I, I think the Jets will at the end of the day become better because last year they really just needed like a quarterback that wouldn't throw interceptions and they would win the game. And, and at least at the at the very least, Rodgers is a quarterback who will not throw interceptions. Yeah, we know how safe of a player Aaron Rodgers is. But going back to your comments about how he went about doing all this, it is very cool to see players have this little agency over their announcements, their major moves, where they're going, and kind of like get more and more into the media part of it to be able to just like truly have that authentic look into like what's going on behind the scenes. What I think is very interesting is just Aaron Rodgers doesn't really seem like he's mad at like sports media in general, but he's just kind of mad that he's not able to have that agency. And he wants to be able to tell the story from his point of view and not have anybody else be able to point, uh, do it from their own point of view. So like in the, the latest report that came out about the wish list, right? ESPN, someone at ESPN, uh, Diana Rossini, I don't even know who, who she is. Uh, she reported that there's potentially a list that Aaron Rodgers had that he gave to the jets and said, Oh, we, this is a list that they would like him to look into. Aaron Rodgers comes on the Pat McAfee show and is just destroying the report saying, Oh, I never said that. Oh, it's making it sound like I put a piece of paper in front of the Jets and was like, go get these players. But like, that's not what she was reporting on. I think it's very interesting that Aaron Rodgers and honestly, to a degree, Pat McAfee just try to like make something out of something that's not actually there. Um, there there was the time a few weeks ago where Pat McAfee was getting mad at the Lions for not letting Dan Campbell come on his show. This past week, he went over after Brett Coleman, someone you and I both really enjoy, for trying to see if uh, the Colts and, by extension, Pat McAfee would do some level of donation for a fan that was in need. It's, it's very interesting how they have this whole idea of what sports media should be, but then also kind of go against what that idea is at the same time. So that that's on the announcement piece. On, on, the, on the field piece, it is very interesting that they gave $11 million to Alan Lazard after we saw Jacoby Myers get the exact same amount of money. And then we also saw Juju Smith-Schuster get the exact same amount of money. We, we put a poll out on our Instagram page. Almost every single person said that Juju or Jacoby were the best out of those three, but they're all making $11 million a year next year. So if there wasn't some level of list and like the Jets are just like trying to appease Rodgers, that's a very interesting way to go about making a team is going after the worst receiver and giving him the most amount of money possible. And then going after guys that realistically aren't going to be on rosters next year. So I, I think that this is a good deal. I, I'm curious to see who ends up having the most leverage in the situation, whether it's the Packers or Jets, whenever trying to make this deal go down. But like there's no way to walk this back at this point, right? Like he's going to be a jet next year, one way or the other. And one of these teams is going to have to budge on how much the compensation is going to be. Cause right now it seems like it might just be like a second round pick or something even lower. What do you think there? To me, the, I would say the ball is in the Packers court. I, I really feel like they have all the leverage. The Packers have already resigned themselves to not having Aaron Rodgers play next season. Right. Like they, they've already come to grips. That's, that's the case. Okay. The Jets have missed out on any potential free agent quarterback signing. If they don't get Rodgers, they're rolling it back with Zach Wilson. Like that's that is the scenario. That, no like, Mike probably, White. No Mike White. Like that maybe Jacoby Brissett would be there. No Brissett's gone. Oh, he is? I thought he hadn't signed yet. Yeah, he signed with the commanders one year, like 10 million. Oh, okay. So okay. So again, no one is out there, right? Like they are losing every like you can't grab Darnold, even though I can't imagine he'd want to come back. Like it, it's Zach White. 
and Aaron Rodgers. Those are your quarterbacks. Like at this point, you guys have been in quarterback purgatory. I, I think the Packers know it. At some point, they're going to budge and just say, screw it. Here's our two first round picks, you know, this, one this year, one next year, because what other option do they have at this point? Yeah, they don't have any other options. Got to be Aaron Rodgers. It'll be interesting to see if, like you said, Zach Wilson ends up being in that deal as like maybe someone who can compete with Jordan Love next year in Green Bay. Uh, what's a realistic season for Jordan Love next year in your eyes? What What do you think the stats could kind of be to see a successful season from Jordan Love? Oh, yeah. First, I'd like to highlight, I don't think Zach Wilson's in that deal. Uh, I, I think Zach Wilson is such a fan of Aaron Rodgers. Like it's come out and said that they've texted each other, et cetera, throughout the, the two seasons he's been in the NFL. But I think that's probably the one quarterback he'd be okay understanding that he has to sit and just learn from him for the next couple of years and, and hope he can turn his career around. Cause he, I mean, anyone with zero self-awareness has to still realize that their value is basically zero after the two seasons he's had. So I, I think learning under Aaron Rodgers is probably the best case scenario for Zach Wilson. I think the player that goes in that trade uh, that I, my brother's a huge Packers fan. I keep trying to give him like best case scenarios. And to me, it's like if they get 13 and a player or 13 and maybe a second next year, I feel like that's a really big win from where they are today. And that player to me would be either Mekhi Becton because of his injury history. He's kind of a, you know, a problematic piece, but maybe the Packers would be enticed there. But I also think Elijah Moore makes a ton of sense. Uh, the, the Jets grabbed, you know, another receiving threat and Al Lazard, they're looking at other players like Eli, Eli Moore really feels like the odd man out, especially after last season, as we've talked about before with him being kind of open and vocal about his distaste for the quarterback situation. I could see, you know, them seeing that as a, a rookie or a second year player grandstanding and just getting him out of town. But you, you package him up with, you know, the 13th pick, now the Packers have a chance to go tackle at 13, receiver at 18 or wherever they are, and then you're you're matching Eli with a potential like Zay Flowers or Jackson Smith Jigba, if, if I say that correctly. Let's just, just go Nailed with JSN. It. Okay, Nailed perfect. It. I'll go with JSN. Um, and that looks like a much more exciting team, right? You have two or three young talents because they have Christian Watson who really came into his own. You're, you're getting a, a rookie tackle. You're, you're really just excited about that offense. And then to your question, now Jordan Love, I think, is poised to really show off what he can do for the next two years. And and then you're starting to say, okay, if he has a good, you know, like a 4,000-yard season, they win nine or ten games. Like, I mean, you're just ecstatic. And, and I think that's very reasonable because he's a more or less a rookie but has been in the league for four years. So, like, no one really knows how to game plan for him just yet. He's got a chance to really show off that arm. And he'll have a ton of stud young receivers to do it with. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I'm excited for the Jordan Love experience. They got a one-year thing that they can do on this team option and figure out what he's going to look like. He has got a good team around him, if we're being honest. Aaron Jones is coming back. There's Christian Watson at wide receiver. I could definitely see him having like a 3,000-yard season next year and maybe like a 2-to-1 touchdown-to-interception ratio. I think that would be something that's exciting and something worth investing in beyond that. The Love tape at Utah State was Pretty enticing, honestly. And so I think that this would be a great chance for him to showcase in a low pressure situation because I don't expect the Packers to open next season as the favorite in the NFC North. What what do you think of the the odds right now for the Jets for next year? Because they're going to have so much pressure on them as the team opening with Aaron Rodgers, obviously the stud receivers that they have and like Garrett Wilson. 
What what do you think of the odds right now of the Jets being the sixth best odds for the Super Bowl next year, sandwiched between Buffalo and Dallas? Yeah, Jets are gonna jet. Um, I would not have them that high. That's just kind of you know, I'm obviously gonna be a biased observer here, but if there's a team that knows how to choke, it's the Jets. If there's a quarterback that knows how to choke in the playoffs, it's Aaron Rodgers. I, I'm not sure why we would say, oh, this clearly makes them the sixth best team. Like we have to see how they gel. I fully agree. And like just looking at some of the teams that are behind them, I'm talking like the Chargers, the Jaguars, the Dolphins, who just got Jalen Ramsey, Baltimore Ravens. Like there's a lot of good teams that are behind the Jets right now that I think have a lot more cohesiveness going on and a lot more proven coaching as well. Like the jury's still out on if Robert Sala is a good coach. I I, I tend to think he kind of is. Maybe he's a little more defensive than he is offensive, but I think that he's a solid coach. I think that there's just much better value out there for some of these other teams. The Jets are getting way too much hype way early on without really proving a whole lot. And especially with how they ended last season with a huge whimper. I I can't get too excited about this Jets team, even with a new quarterback coming in. But like Rodgers is old. Like he had a bad season last year. Yeah, he was MVP two straight times right before that. But I think we need to see a little bit more before we can crown the Jets AFC East champs. Let's also consider they they now have Nathaniel Hackett, who had an abysmal season with the Broncos. I know Rodgers and Hackett worked well together with the Packers. But to your point, that was Rodgers playing Super Saiyan levels of football, which we did not see at all last year. Uh, So was it Hackett? Was it Hackett and Rodgers? Or was it just... Rogers being very good on a very good team. We don't, yeah. We're not really sure. Yeah. A lot that's of question marks. Point. Moral of the story, so many question marks with this pat or that Jets team. That, that's a great point. I, I would hammer though the over on Garrett Wilson receiving yards next year. Like he got like a thousand yards this year with having Zach Wilson, Mike White, Joe Flacco throw to him. I think with Aaron Rodgers, he could have like a 1500 yard season next year. That one I'm really excited about. His fantasy props are way up. Anything we didn't touch with this uh, Rodgers to Jets story? No, I, I I think that's the biggest news piece because there's just a lot of ramifications and we'll, we'll talk more about free agency later. So I'd, I'd say that's the main one. Maybe other than the fact like he said he's not going to drag it out and yet here we are with Aaron Rodgers dragging it out. Like it's just kind of, you know, shocking to no one. Yeah, he came out of the cave and just like didn't have any clarity. Yet. I, just, I love that. All of us. <laughs> the, I came out of the darkness and knew I wanted to be a jet. It's like, brother, that's going into the darkness. What are you talking about? Honestly, with how good that division is, it's tough. All right, let's go into March Madness real quick, and then we'll keep it NFL-centric from there. So how is your bracket going so far, Jimmy D? We are one weekend through of March Madness. I still have three or four Final Four teams. I had a pretty rough um, bottom right section where it's like I have like Kansas versus some other team that's been eliminated in, in my elite eight matchup. So it's like that bracket is already to the uh, no more points available, but I, I have my other guys out there, you know, including like Craig in the elite, a uh, Michigan state in the elite eight, things like that. So I have a chance for points. Um, just kind of the classic, you know, I, I don't know what the heck I'm doing. You know, I, I get really excited for upsets. I picked all the wrong ones though. So it just is what it is. Yeah, none of the upsets that I had really hit. And as you mentioned in that bottom white right quadrant, that's the one with like UCLA, um, Kansas, et cetera. That first round was so chalky and I was not expecting that every single uh, lower seed 
that was in a matchup. So you like the one seed, two seed, et cetera. They all won every single matchup there, which was a huge shock to me. I was calling a lot of upsets in that division and nothing happened. Um, I'm in the 77 percentile of all ASBN brackets. Pretty happy about that. It gives me a good uh, position as we go forward. A lot of points available still on the board. My pick of Alabama versus Houston is still holding strong. The only one that I lost out on was Marquette. Just looking at how other people picked it, it was pretty much Purdue or Marquette for everybody. And now the highest seed remaining in that region is Kansas State. So it's anybody's guess what happens there. But I feel like most people are kind of screwed in that region regardless. So uh, what's been your favorite game so far, just in terms of just like general action? It has to be just the it's it's FDU with their what fairly Dickinson University upsetting Purdue because of just like how absurd it was like that was possibly the most easy to lock in game as far as like oh Purdue's gonna win this uh, you know the metrics come out uh FDU is like ranked 300 out of 303 possible teams and just abysmal defense uh, you know I don't know what the direct metric was called but I mean just like nothing that they do is good uh their average height was 6-1 and they're playing in division one basketball like that's park ball levels of height I mean, I mean you're gonna go up to a game at the local park and find taller dudes playing basketball than that team. Um, and then, and then just like their entire defense was like, Hey, let's pack the paint as much as possible and hope Purdue misses shots or like, let's sprint at their players and hope they make bad passes. And if they don't, then I guess we're just going to give up layups. And like, it just worked the whole game. Like Purdue did not want to make shots or I, I mean, they just played like the most incompetent basketball anyone seat has ever played. Um, so it's just, it, it was just kind of ex- exciting to see it. I think everyone loves the big upset, even if it causes you to try to burn your bracket. Yeah. It's such a weird game. Like I love that Purdue had such an easy matchup going into this, right? You, you mentioned how terrible fairly Dixon was. They didn't even win their own conference tournament. They only got in on a technicality. Their average height was six, one, and they're going against a guy who was seven, four and Zach Eady. Like this should have been the easiest matchup ever. Just feed Eady, let him dunk, get 45 points in the game and just move on. But I, I think they went to this game as a 22 point underdog. And as you mentioned, they just came in fearless after you did and made this a game. And whenever it's a game like that late in the late, the game sort of situation, like you never really know what's going to end up happening. And I think that, I think that fairly Dixon did a very smart thing and that they didn't try and play scared. They tried to play confidently and do things not conservatively, but just like going right at them. And that really makes a big difference whenever you get into a March Madness situation like that. So that one really pained me. I love Purdue. I love Matt Painter, their head coach, and I love a lot of what they do as a program, but they just didn't have that guard play anymore. We saw Ivy leave for the NFL draft last year, and it just felt like they didn't have that juice in terms of the guards. And that's what cost them in this game. So Should we right now? do our prop bet of Purdue winning it all next year. They're just going to do the exact same Virginia arc. You lose as a one seed. You get so embarrassed that there's nothing you can do but win the next year to make up for it. That, that'd be a pretty interesting one. And if Edie decides to come back, he still has eligibility. That could be something that cashes in pretty easily. So I like it. Let's do it. My favorite game of the tournament so far was Arkansas versus Kansas. Obviously, we had the whole connotation of how do you pronounce Arkansas versus Kansas? Like, there's no one, no one really knows how you're supposed to pronounce those sort of states. So that was a fun little uh, subtext there. But in terms of like the actual basketball, this is just two squads that are super experienced just going against each other. We had Arkansas with all their 
prize freshmen talking like Jordan Walsh, um, Anthony Black, Nick Smith Jr. going against Kansas with some of their more veteran players, Jalen Wilson and Daywan Harris. And Arkansas just had more athleticism and they were able to close this game out. I feel bad for Kansas just because they didn't have their coach, Bill Self, who is dealing with some heart and health issues. That kind of sucks. Like they didn't get them at full strength, but this game was just so exciting. It was so cool to see Arkansas finally put everything together. And this is a team going into the season that was supposed to be a national championship contender. And now they actually are by beating out on Kansas. But there's also the little part of this is how much does it hurt that that could have been Illinois? That could be Illinois in the Sweet 16 right now if they would have just beaten Arkansas in the first round. Yeah, I mean, you, you can say that that would be Illinois, but that doesn't mean Illinois plays Kansas the same way. Uh, you know, I, th- I think these past two games showed that Arkansas might have actually been a little bit underranked, if you will. Like, they are clearly a, a very athletic, uh, scrappy team. But yeah, it, it hurts. You know, the, the Illinois should be in the championship, but it's fine. It's all good. My actual favorite game of the tournament, though, it's got to be Creighton over Baylor, right? Creighton's my favorite team. They've been my favorite team for a long, long time. Baylor destroyed Creighton by like 30 in the tournament back in 2014 in Doug McDermott's final season at Creighton. Most embarrassing loss of my lifetime, and it really, really hurt and pained me. I remember going to like Buffalo Wild Wings with my dad to watch this game. We were super hyped for it, and then they just get creamed. It was just this stupid zone that Baylor played that we could not figure out. But we got our revenge over the weekend over Baylor. They played excellent. They nailed all of their shots, and it felt really unsustainable. And as we went to the last few minutes, Baylor kept forcing all these really nasty turnovers, and I thought Creighton might blow it, but they were able to hold on and get the dub. Only our second Sweet 16 since 1974, our second and third year, three years, and upcoming, we have Princeton that Creighton is playing. And like, yeah, Princeton's playing well, but they're 15 C at the end of the day. So very good shot that we get to the Elite Eight, which would be only the second in school history. So really, really excited for this one. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens with the, within the rest of the tournament. I know a lot of people are kind of having them as a sleeper in the final four, which would be cool, but got to get past Bama first. Creighton has to have the most winnable matchup to get into the Elite Eight, right? Like, again, no disrespect to Princeton. It's awesome that they're here, but there's a reason you're a 15 seed beating up Ivy league schools is different than any other division. Yeah. I, I feel bad for my uncle. My uncle uh, has season tickets for Creighton games, Creighton basketball, but he also went to Princeton for his undergrad. So like, I, I, who do you choose at that point? So I guess you can't lose on either end. Who's been your favorite player so far in the tournament? I'm just going to defer to you. I don't, I don't know if I can, can truly pick a favorite here. I, I really just like, um, you know, catching basically the last two minutes of any game and, and cheering for upset. So I, I don't know if I've ever picked out any one person and, and with Illinois playing as poorly as they did, you know, I was just disheartened by a lot of it. So uh, I'll, I'll let you roll with this one. More of a team guy. I get it. Uh, my favorite player of the tournament so far has been Count A. Johnson. I, it's really strictly just for the story. Uh, you've probably seen it before, Jimmy D, but Keontae Johnson was at Florida a handful of years ago and he was walking across half court and just like collapsed pretty randomly. I had some sort of like heart cardiovascular issue, um, rushed to the hospital. He was in a coma for three days. Really, really scary stuff. He ends up going to Kansas State transfers from Florida and just has a stellar season averages 17 points per game. He's like 23, 24 years old, super senior and everything like that, and is the second leading scorer for Kansas State, and he had a huge three to help them beat out on uh, 
Kentucky this past weekend. So it's been super fun to watch him play. I love this Kansas State squad, and I hope they keep winning. And it looks like right now they have a very clear path to make it to the Final Four, so it's been exciting stuff. What's been your favorite upset of the tournament? I feel like I've got I mean, if I if I said my favorite game was FDU over Purdue, like my favorite upset has to be FDU over Purdue, right? I'll, I'll give a shout out to Princeton. You know, a 15 beating a two is huge, but there's a reason a 16 seed's only beaten a one twice in tournament history, and FDU being the first one to win that play-in game and then still upset the the number one seed is just pretty damn impressive. Yeah, even with the loss in the next round, like it's still a great run and definitely put them on the map. Their enrollment's going to be going way up after that. Penn State over A&M, though, was my favorite upset of the tournament so far. It wasn't the biggest upset in terms of like spread. A lot of people were penciling in A&M to go to that next round. A&M, in a lot of people's minds, were underseeded. Penn State was one of those teams that like just barely made it into the tournament. It was probably a little overseeded, if we're being honest, but... I just hate A&M with a passion being here in Texas. There are so many Aggie fans and it's like a freaking cult and they're really scary and really weird and really annoying. And Penn state's kind of a cult. They're like the cult of the North, but they're a much more enjoyable cult to be following. And they just shot the lights out on A&M. They had one guy who went eight for 10 from three. It was so much fun watching A&M fall apart and uh, talking to my Aggie fan, uh, Aggie fan friends at work today was very enjoyable. So I appreciate that upset. What's been your uh, biggest heartbreak, which I think I also already know. Yeah, it's just Illinois. Uh, we, we get here, uh, you know, I'm, I'm like lifting uh, on Thursday, seeing some highlights come across ESPN and, and it comes up. Illinois has not made the Sweet 16 since 2005. So that was the year they were, you know, only had one loss the whole season. They should have won it all and, and kind of really choked it off in the championship. It's like, all right, let's, you know, let's uh, make up for, being a number one seed and losing to freaking Loyola or whatever happened a couple of years ago. Um, and, you know, I was excited and they just, they played bad. They, I don't know. It just, it, it really just kind of sinks in. You know, if you're a fan of Illinois sports, whether it's the Bulls, the Bears, the Illini, like we're just poverty in Illinois and we just can't seem to ever get it done. So it's just, it's just a tough, tough pill to swallow there. Yeah, it's a lot of like what could have been, right? Because Illinois has like three or four guys on the roster that are NBA talent worthy, and they just couldn't put together as a team. A lot of just like individual type basketball, and so it kind of sucks to watch. My biggest heartbreak is a squad from Iowa, Drake, uh, coming out of Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, the Drake Bulldogs were my favorite upset pick. I penciled them in. I, I sharpied them in, if we're being real, into the Sweet 16. Ended up losing a huge head-scratcher to Miami, the Hurricanes. They were up late and then just, like, fell apart at the end. I didn't even get to watch this game until after the fact, and I was just, like, watching my, at my TV dumbfounded at the fact that they managed to lose that game. Miami then goes on to beat Indiana, and it's just, like, one of those moments where it's like, damn it, Drake should have been there. And, uh, yeah, so that was, like, the team that I was calling as an upset potential. They had Tucker DeVries, one of the best shooters in all of college basketball, along with his dad as the head coach, and they just can't get it done. So my Missouri Valley boys let me down, so big heartbreak there. What's been your best call of the tournament? Yeah, I don't know if you recall last week, but... I was as chalky as possible with my upset pick saying, hey, guys, it's not often you get Michigan State, Duke, and Kentucky as these kind of you know surprising high seeds. Uh, I was a few, to, like, to your point, big shots away from correctly getting Kentucky, Duke, and Michigan State all in the Sweet 16. Uh, but I did get Michigan State beating Marquette in there to at least get some semblance of indication. But 
Uh, it really is a what could have been. Like I'd have looked like Nostradamus if I'd have had just all these perfectly called, you know, picks that no one was really thinking of. Yeah, Tom Izzo in March is tough to be, and I I felt good about this Marquette squad, but they just kind of fell apart, and Shaka Smart's magic just kind of ran out for that Marquette team. My my best call and my favorite call that I've had that was actually correct was having the 11 seed beat Iowa State. I, I have Pitt written down, but like, it didn't even matter who the 11 seed was. I thought Iowa State was one of the most overrated teams going into the tournament, not necessarily in that they're a bad squad. It's just more so that they've been struggling all season long, especially in the second half of the season, on top of the fact that I think they were just overseeded. They were in a uh, six seed going into the tournament. That just felt way too high, given that they finished near the bottom of the Big 12. So I was pretty confident that Iowa State was going to lose in the first round. I didn't pick them in a single bracket and Pitt got the job done. So a pretty easy one there. To finish up our March Madness talk, what is your favorite match that's upcoming? Yeah, looking at the all of the Sweet 16, you know, Princeton Creighton's exciting just because it's like the two, you know, highest seeded teams. Or I guess not the highest, but it's like the, the best chance for a 15 to sneak into the eight or the best chance for an uh, unassuming Creighton team to, to make it in. So that's pretty exciting. But I, I just think as hot as Miami is playing right now, that Houston versus Miami has to be on everyone's radar. Yeah, that's going to be a high-scoring game, especially if everyone in Houston is healthy. Miami's been scoring like 80 a game in the tournament, so they're going to be putting up a lot of points. For similar reasons, I have Gonzaga versus UCLA. This is two experienced squads with a little bit of like freshman magic mixed in there. Uh, I'm very excited to see if Gonzaga can kind of get some monkeys off their back. This is a uh, NCAA championship uh, rematch or not not championship, but final four rematch from a couple of years ago. Uh, we got Drew Timmy still kicking around. UCLA has a lot of injuries going on, but they have some freshmen that are stepping up. And I think this could be a really exciting game. So it's a 2v3. It's going to be a fun one. All right. Moving into NFL talk now. We're going over week two of NFL free agency at winners and losers. So start us off with your first winner, Jimmy D. Yeah, and you can give more to this, but the, the so far the paper winners of the offseason are the Lions. That they've just done the most to make their team better and in a position to actually compete for their division, where no one really expected that out of them until uh, you know this past couple of seasons. So uh, I think it's a big kudos to Lions. You don't want to be known as the offseason champions, but you know if you're a Lions fan, getting to be the champion of anything has to feel pretty good. So it's you know a lot of things looking up for them going into this year. Yeah, this Lions free agency class really reminds me of the class where they got like Reggie Bush and a handful of other really good depth pieces that end up being able to step up and be more star level players. Uh, we got Manuel Mosley and Cam Sutton, as we talked about last week. We got CJ Gardner Johnson or no, what's his first name? That's not CJ. Yeah. Is it CJ? Chauncey. Chauncey. Gardner, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Chauncey Gardner Johnson safety for one year, eight million. Um, and then we also got Graham Glasgow back on a one-year $4.5 million deal. He's widely considered one of the better offensive linemen in the league. So all in all, just been a very exciting offseason so far for the Lions, whereas usually they sit out in free agency. Instead, they're really leaning in and actually getting some good players. So it shows that, one, our GM, Brad Holmes, is having a good amount of control over the front office, which I think is a good thing. Just having those like separation of duties between coaching with Dan Campbell 
and the front office, but also too that we really know that our time is now. And if we put in the right pieces, we can be a dangerous team going into 2023. So super excited. I'm cautiously optimistic. As you mentioned, you don't necessarily want to be the team that spends the most money in free agency. Like usually those teams don't really pan out, but it's exciting to at least have something to root for. And so it's been pretty cool so far. Who's been your biggest loser so far? Yeah, I'll go with, uh, this could almost be a hot take, but I think the Panthers have to be a big loser in free agency. I know they signed uh, Miles Sanders, they signed Adam Thielen, but I don't think those are really that big of plays. And, and you let Deontay Foreman walk, who is kind of the heart and soul of your team this past year. I, I think they're setting themselves up to match kind of on the downward slope veterans with a young rookie. And I, I just don't love that combination. I think Miles Sanders, where you got him, is, is fine, but that that's not really a replacement to Christian McCaffrey by any stretch of the imagination. And, and I, I just think Adam Thielen's a, a non-starter. Um, I, I loved Adam Thielen four years ago, but his decline in play has been very noticeable. There's a reason why he, as the hometown hero in, in Minnesota, has been let go. Um, he, he's just not the same guy he used to be in. You know, he's basically just kind of relegated to a red zone target at this point. And do you really think the Panthers are going to be in the red zone all that much this year? I'm not sure. Like they they need explosive playmakers, and and I just don't see anywhere where they got that because, um, you know, Sanders looked great this year, but he was also behind the best offensive line in football. Uh, He's not going to get that next year, and their first round pick is going to be on a quarterback, and then they're going to have no picks until the the third or fourth round to try to clean up the offensive line. Like I think it's going to be kind of a, a rough season for the Panthers. Yeah, I, I think their offensive line is maybe a little bit better than you're giving it credit for. It's young. They got um, their first overall pick, Okonkwu, a, a who's going to be their starting left tackle. He's back and healthy. However, I do agree everywhere else on this Panthers uh, free agency spree has been a little bit rough. Um, Adam Thielen, uh, as you mentioned, big winner for Thielen, kind of a loser on the Panthers side. Don't understand why they had to give three years and their deal to Adam Thielen, that feels like a lot. We don't really know what the money amount looks like at this point, but like he's going to be 36 at the other end of that contract, and he's already been kind of slowing down. Some of the other moves they've been making, like Hayden Hurst, feel like you're paying top dollar for him. Same thing with Miles Sanders. You're kind of paying top of market rather than trying to get some level of a steal there. It's a little strange. I get they're trying to put weapons around whoever they get at quarterback at number one, whether that's Stroud or Young, Levis, whatever. It just feels a little bit weird to me and a little bit rushed. So they're they're definitely up there in terms of biggest losers. Another loser that I have on my list is the Eagles, which isn't unexpected given that they just made the Super Bowl this past year, but it feels like they're losing a lot of talent. I already mentioned uh, Gardner Johnson. They lost Zach Pascal from wide receiver, who was actually pretty helpful. And they, I think probably the biggest loss they had was Isaac Ciamalo, who a lot of people, um, people way better at scouting, offensive line talent than me we're saying was the best offensive guard in this entire free agency class just lost him to the crosstown Steelers they did have some redeeming factors like getting Fletcher Cox back they got James Bradbury back Slay ended up deciding to make a comeback even though for a second there it looked like he was going to be cut and probably their most underrated move of the offseason Rashad Penny they got for like one year one million super good deal for him um, it's just like losing those big pieces really sucks for the Eagles so they're one of my losers for the offseason who else do you have on your winners and losers list I promise I'm not copying here but uh 
Thielen getting three years at the age of 33, uh, that was wild. I, I think a decent amount of it was guaranteed to like, it might be a total contract value, like 25 million with like 16 or 19, I feel like is the number that is guaranteed. So just a lot of money to give a guy that I think his production is a giant question mark. Uh, but if I'm Thielen, I really don't care. I'm, I'm getting the bag on my way out. So it's pretty exciting for Thielen. Yeah, that's a pretty easy one. Uh, a loser that I have here is Jamal Williams. I think that I, I okay, so I, I have a complicated history with Jamal Williams, right? Like was excited for his success in Detroit, but like at the end of the day was a little bit overrated just because they kept giving him the damn ball, the one guard line, which I thought should go to Swift, right? However, the, the culture level of Jamal Williams is so hard to measure. He was the heart and soul of that team. And it just sucks. Like, I'm sure he wanted to go back to Detroit, but instead it seems like they chose David Montgomery, who came over on a three-year, $18 million deal over from the Bears, went to the Lions. And now Jamal Williams has to restart in a new city. He got a pretty good amount of money, too, coming off of his career year. But now he's got to explain to New Orleans, like, all of his love for anime and all these other things that just, like, made him quirky and fun in Detroit. And now he's got to try and do it in a whole new locker room. So... I hate to see it for Jamal Williams. Would have liked to see him come back in Detroit, but our regime made a different decision. And so, yeah, I, I think it's going to be a little tougher for Jamal to compete against Kamara, for, whereas in Detroit, he's able to compete against Swift. It also feels like, I mean, he kind of said he felt disrespected by the offer he was given on the way out the door. And it's like everyone talked about how big of a deal he was in that locker room. Like, don't slap him in the face on the way out. Just say, hey, we're, you know, we're moving on, but thanks for your time. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Who else you got in your winners and losers? I think Jacoby Myers uh, goes from undrafted free agent to getting an $11 million per year deal with a team that is going to need to utilize him because they just shipped out Darren Waller. So, you know, every bit of attention is going to be on Devontae Adams. And, and the biggest knock on Jacoby was he's not a number one receiver, but New England's asking him to be. I, I think he's going to be a sneaky, great wide receiver too this year. That's going to get a ton of volume just because teams are going to have to double Devontae Adams. Yeah, he's going to be a great fit. And for the Raiders and yeah, it's kind of interesting how his path is just completely crossed against like Nikhil Harry, right? Harry was the first round pick was expected to sign a deal and free agency like this in a few years, but he completely fell off. Whereas the undrafted guy was actually the one who came in and got all the money. So pretty cool. It's been a fun story to track ever since he signed with the, with the Patriots a few years ago. One of my biggest winners of the off season, my last big winner is Baker Mayfield. Man keeps sticking around to sign a deal with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I think he'll have no issues beating out Kyle Trask, even though there's been all that hype behind Kyle Trask. This is probably the best situation that Baker's been in in his entire NFL career. Got two great wide receivers, a lot of other weapons. Rashad White is on the come up. And also, the Buccaneers are able to keep a good amount of their defense together. Jamel Dean just re-signed on a below-market deal, for, at least from what people are expecting. And then Levante David also came back on a one-year $7 million deal, so also very low. So I think this uh, Tampa Bay team could definitely make some noise again in the NFC South. Definitely sucks not to have Tom Brady anymore. They also made a couple of trades among the offensive line. However, I think Baker is going to be very happy throwing to Mike Evans and Chris Godwin. So it's going to be a fun season for Baker, I think. I, th I think Baker is a great pick. Um, to your point, he's not Tom Brady, but if this team stays healthy, at least you have a decent offensive line. You've got some cool young weapons at running back, and, and you got Mike Evans and Chris Godwin who can make anyone's life as a quarterback a lot easier. 
I, I think he probably turns the ball over a bit more, but also is willing to take more risks than Tom. Uh, so I, I think they're kind of like a sneaky, could you know get in at a, as a nine-win team again type playoff team. Sure beats playing with the 22 Panthers, that's for sure. Who's, who's your last loser here? It's just any running back that was trying to get a deal. Uh, I think Saquon Barkley couldn't have signed that free agent tender for, or the um, uh, franchise tag fast enough. Same with uh, Tony Pollard because it's like, well, at least I'm guaranteed $10 million, whereas these other guys were signing three- and four-year deals with the guarantees maxing out at, at $9 million. Like it, it just does not pay to be a running back. You know, Montgomery, who has had just a monster – you know, rookie contract with the, with the bears. They don't care. Like screw it. We'll, we'll run with Khalil Herbert and you know, you're not worth 18 million to us. Miles Sanders has a great career with the, uh, the Eagles, same exact thing. Yeah. We don't care. Jamal Williams, heart and soul of a team. Sorry. We don't care. Go somewhere else. Like it, it, trying to get onto a team as a running back free agent has to be just nightmare fuel for, for professional athletes. Yeah, and like if you were a running back that got signed earlier in free agency, it definitely seems like you did better. You you mentioned Barkley and Pollard. Um, we also saw Samaj P. Ryan sign a pretty good deal. But then you look at like Deontay Foreman, who had what like nine hundred yards, a thousand yards, or something like that last year. One year, three million dollar deal with Chicago. He's got plenty of tread left on the tires. I feel like so definitely interesting to see all these running back deals come in. And I think a lot of that is based off what we talked about last week. There's a lot of good uh, running backs in the draft this upcoming year. It's a great year to draft a running back seemingly. And so I think that kind of plays into the depressed value here. My last loser that I had is Jacoby Brissett. I, I think he actually landed like in a somewhat good situation in terms of the quarterbacks that are ahead of him signing with the Washington Commanders. I just think that he's going to have a hard time getting ahead of Howell and the depth chart when it comes to playing with uh, Ron Rivera as his head coach. I just feel like Rivera is definitely going to latch on to Howell, really, really not want to play Brissett and only go to Brissett in a tough, tough situation. I I, I kind of feel like Ron Rivera's kind of lost his touch to a degree. And I, I just, I just struggle to see where he's going to get the reps. He did get a good amount of money, which I think is like the redeeming part of this for Brissett. He got like 10 million or so. Um, I just, I just, Something about it, the whole situation, makes me feel like it's going to be Howell all season long, and Brissett's just going to be um, strapped to the the bench for the whole time, even though he's got good receivers there. Great. All right, so now we're going to our NFL draft rankings. Just once again, we are going position group by position group and giving our top five. These are kind of fun to do, and like honestly, I feel like for quarterback and running back, they're pretty easy, but wide receiver is a little bit tougher. Uh, what's your general vibe of this class when it comes to wide receivers? Do you think it's a good class, bad class, average class? What are you thinking here? I feel like overall good class, the high-end talent doesn't feel like it's there. You don't have the Garrett Wilson type player uh, to go get. You don't have the Jamar Chase, the Justin Jefferson uh, that we know of. I mean, Justin Jefferson obviously would have gone number one overall if people knew who he was going to be. But it just it doesn't quite seem like we have that. Uh, but we have a lot of guys that I think are going to be great positional pieces to some teams willing to take them, you know, 15 through 25 that will then at that point get onto teams that have good quarterback play and will get to thrive as rookies. Like it's exciting as a fantasy manager being like, Hey, these guys are going to go to good teams. So they're going to be able to, to really to hit it off um, versus when you get drafted, like number three or four overall, it's like, shoot, I hope to God they have a, a competent quarterback. Yeah, and I think there's just a bunch of different like archetypes in this draft as well. Like if you want a speed guy, 
they're there. If you want a guy who's taller and more of a possession guy, they're there. And it really depends on fit and where uh, the respective wide receiver goes. Like that's obviously always a thing, but like, I, I feel like there's a lot of guys that are going to be dependent on that more so than like Garrett Wilson last year, who was going to be good no matter what. And he was kind of in a rough situation in New York and still thrive regardless. So I think um, teams are going to need to be um, very careful on who they draft. If they're especially drafting a wide receiver in the twenties um, or into the second round, they're going to make sure got to make sure that they get the type of guy that they need and make sure that they complement their existing wide receiver core. So let's go and get into this and let's start with our fifth best wide receiver in the draft who do you have in this slot i've got josh downs i i think um he is sorry J- josh downs right from north yeah. carolina okay mm-hmm. sorry I, when i put just the last name i really set myself up for failure here just because I, I don't know the college guys as well as the pros um but i mean just a, an incredible athlete out of north carolina definitely more of the the marquise brown type than you know like the big Devonte adams type but i mean the dude is just so fast so quick um I think he can just really step in and, and make a big difference. And, you know, we saw with Devontae Adams, you don't have to be this massive human to survive in the NFL anymore at the receiver position. So as long as he knows how to get himself out of bounds, how to get down, you know, without taking nasty shots, he'll, he'll be fine, even though he has that smaller frame. And, and I, I think he just proved, uh, you know, himself at North Carolina so well, where, you know, maybe people thought it was was May the quarterback. And it's like, that might actually have been uh, Downs the receiver that that made that whole system click. See, I was going to say the exact same thing. Like a lot of folks were like, is it Downs or is it May? And like early in the season, before anybody really knew who Downs was, we were like, oh, it's a quarterback. But at, by the end of the season, we're like, oh, maybe it's Josh Downs. 448 speed, had over a thousand yards last year, 11 touchdowns, which finished uh, seventh nationally. Downs is a baller. I struggled to not put him at five. He's probably 5B for me. My 5A that I had in this slot here is Cedric Tillman. One of my favorite wide receivers in all of the draft wide receiver out of Tennessee. Uh, I, I couldn't put Hyatt even above him because I think Tillman pops a little bit more. He's that more complete receiver that I think gives you an ability to like actually get to a, a wide receiver X or like a number one type receiver. And whereas Hyatt's just kind of like that gadgety kind of guy. So Tillman always popped off the page a little bit more for me than Hyatt. And therefore I had to put him at number five. I think that in a couple of years we could definitely see him as like an Allen Robinson type receiver. Yeah, don't, I think Hyatt goes over Tillman though, right? Like he's kind of projected as an early second rounder. Realistically, but that's just how I have him ranked. You know? Yeah, no, I was, I was just kind of clarifying, you know, that, that clarifying point. That's like, you think that Tillman should go higher, but it, it does feel like Hyatt is probably going to get picked first. Correct. Like it, he's just the flavor of the month, right? Tillman had a thousand yards last year, whereas Hyatt was like a nobody. And then all of a sudden Hyatt has a five touchdown game against Bama and everyone's super excited about Jalen Hyatt. His speed isn't really there. And he just seems so small and frail, like even more so than Devonte Smith. So I can't get excited about Hyatt personally. Gotcha. So then at number four, uh, you know, huge, huge games in the, in the playoffs, not necessarily the national championship, but it's gotta be Quentin Johnson at a, at a TCU he just really, to your point, like prototypes into that kind of tall Julio Jones, you know, speedy, but not necessarily quick type receiver uh, that seems to be able to win jump balls, but maybe isn't a complete route runner, just more of a, an athletic specimen. And his entire college career was just winning jump balls from from Dugan. So um, he's he's been all over the place. I think he's one of the more interesting players where it's like early he was like projected top 10 pretty easily. 
Now he's projected maybe lower first round to second round. I, I think this is one of those players where it's like if someone as a GM falls in love with him, he could go super early or he could be like a great value later or he could even be like the next DK Metcalf where everyone's like, oh, he was supposed to be the the main dude. You know, we, we saw some of those workout pictures where he just looked like a stud. Um, and, and then all of a sudden he still just goes like pick 45. So I, I think he's interesting. I, I do think he's about the fourth best because he just doesn't feel as complete as the next three guys. Yeah, and I also had Quentin Johnson in my fourth slot here. I, I was really excited about him going into this whole cycle of the NFL draft, but the more I see on him, the more I struggle to see him being a top, top-tier guy. I think that it's going to be a little bit more like Josh Doxson, who is also a receiver out of TCU, but he also kind of struggled to get separation. And I think the most damning part with Quentin Johnson, as I was watching a draft analysis uh, from Steve Smith Sr., which Steve Smith Sr., probably one of the best scouts in all of the NFL when it comes to wide receivers. I don't know why he's not on a team. He probably makes more just having his podcast and everything like that. That's probably why he does it. But he was talking about how much of a possession receiver Quentin Johnson is, which is a good thing sometimes, like if you're doing a pass out into the flat and then letting Quentin Johnson just take off. But there's a few instances where he really just uses his body to catch instead of just extending his arms out to where the ball needs to be. And I think that's going to make Johnson struggle, especially early on in his career. Uh, The potential's there, but I don't think he's like a top 10 pick anymore, like you were mentioning. I think he makes more sense in that late first round, early second. So who do you have at number three here? It's got to be Jordan Addison, right? It, yeah. Okay. Uh, out, of, out of USC, um, great season. He had a great quarterback, but he feels like a fit kind of anywhere. And I can see him easily going top 15 just because he, he just really seems to have the it factor. Yeah. And he can do a little bit of everything. He definitely like measures out best when it comes to statistics. However, how much of that is Addison? How much is that the quarterback? As you mentioned, he's played with Kenny Pickett. And Caleb Williams, two NFL level quarterbacks. So we don't really know exactly what Jordan Addison's going to look like. He measured out pretty good at the combine when it comes to his 40 yard dash and everything like that. But um, a little bit short, 5'11. He might be more like that DJ Moore type player in the NFL. So I had Addison as my second best receiver. My third receiver that I had here, Zay Flowers. Super excited about Zay Flowers. I struggle a little bit just with the with the size and just like the overall production, but he really, really just jumps off the tape. Um, also, we talked about how much he's been bulking up lately, had a fair good combine. Um, I, I love Zay Flowers, and I think honestly any of these top three guys are worthy of a top 20 pick. It really just fit depends on what fit he ends up going into. I would love to see him in a Patriots uniform next year. I'm with you on that one, buddy. Uh, number two. I went with with uh, JSN here. So, you know, last year, if he was able to go into the draft after that season, he would have been drafted higher than uh, Garrett Wilson. I mean, he had the, the better season of the two, but he was unfortunately a sophomore, not a junior. So I, I'm not sure why he would, you know, like it, it makes no sense that he's so low this year. You know, it's, it's one of those ones where it's like, okay, if he had that awesome sophomore year and then just sat out, uh, a la Jamar Chase, like maybe he's a considered a top 10 pick right now, but uh, you know, I, th- I think people are maybe looking at pro days and combines a bit too much and not just the production on tape. Cause he, he absolutely is a baller and, and just knows how to get open. Uh, so I, I got him at number two. I, I think he's worthy of, of a pretty high pick, uh, but I just don't have him as highly ranked as to your point, say flowers who I hope goes to the Patriots, but I don't know if he'll even fall that far uh, mainly because they, 
uh, you know, you mentioned Brett Coleman earlier, but like, is like Brett Coleman's absolutely in love with the guy. You watch some of his breakdowns and say, and it makes sense why anyone would be into him. He's incredibly intelligent and, and comps almost exactly to Antonio Brown. So I, I just don't know how you could see that and not um, just jump for joy at the thought of getting a more intelligent, thoughtful Antonio Brown. Yeah, no, definitely. So I totally understand Zay Flowers number one. I, I'm very similar with you about him being top three. Number one here, I also, as you had him at number two, I have Jason Jackson Smith Najigba. I think that he has the highest ceiling amongst all of these receivers. Definitely has a very low floor, though, given the injury history. But if you look at his sophomore season that he had at Ohio State, right, it, it makes everything else just pale in comparison. That's even taking out his last game, right? So he had 95 catches, uh, 1,600 yards, nine touchdowns, obviously had that incredible Rose Bowl where he had like 300 yards, four touchdowns or something stupid like that. I think that just that season, whenever you compare it to like what like Marvin Harrison Jr. did this season, it just makes JSN look so good. And it's so hard to get that top tier level of production. I, as you mentioned, I think people fall in love a little bit too much with the combine stats. He decided not to run the 40 making people start calling him Jackson Sloth Najigba. Pretty funny. Uh, but I think that JSN has the highest ceiling, and therefore I would I have to have him number one because I think that he could be a Pro Bowl-level talent, whereas a lot of these other guys, I, I think that they could kind of maybe get there, but I, I struggle a little bit more with them than what I do with JSN. So I, I think I think that he just has the, the highest ceiling. I, I don't know if I take him with like a top 10 pick, though. Like I, I probably still have him behind like Drake London, Chris Olave from last year, but I, I still love Jason a lot. I, I think top three guys are are all going to be very productive this year. Yeah, and like all worthy of like first round picks when it comes to NFL rookie drafts. Um, we'll be curious to see what situations they fall in, and that'll really determine a lot of their value. Yeah. All right, hot take section. Hot take section. Hot take sections here. So this week we are doing our top five favorite upsets in March Madness history. Simple enough. All right, Simple go enough. to your number I, five, JBD. Yeah, and I would say the the big takeaway here though will be I went with almost like upset runs and you went with just specific games. You know, we don't really like to limit ourselves on on this hot take section. So uh if that's an issue with the listeners, they can sue me, but I, I mix it up. So uh first one is my only single game upset, but UMBC over Virginia, first ever 16 seed to beat a one seed, a feat that everyone thought was impossible. People would just lock it in every year, you know, bet $10,000 on one seeds in the first round because it's, it's guaranteed, right? Just take that money line, even if it's basically nothing because it's it's a guarantee. And they finally proved that, hey, college basketball has a little bit more parity than everyone thought it did. And, and this can be done. Yeah. Game made no sense in the moment, but the, the Terriers got it done, and their trolling of Virginia right after the game was top, top tier, especially on Twitter. My number five game was a heartbreaker in the moment for me, but now that I look back, absolutely hilarious of a game. Northern Iowa over Kansas. Northern Iowa was like an eight or nine seed, I can't remember, beat number one overall Kansas. Kansas had Sharon Collins, a bunch of other really solid players that ended up going to the NBA. And Northern Iowa had a bunch of plumbers on their team, and they just made it happen, made a bunch of threes and upset Kansas. Northern Iowa's run ended shortly after that, but it was a fun game to watch for the Missouri Valley. I really like that Kansas team for some reason. I don't really know why looking back, like I have a bunch of insufferable level players like Cole Aldrich and such. But uh, now that I look back on it, it's pretty damn funny. So love the Panthers. 
So the number four, this is just a run in general, but Davidson's run to the Elite Eight uh, when Steph Curry really came into the limelight. You have the highlight of Steph making some sick layups with like LeBron watching that is still used in highlight tapes to this day. Um, magical run to watch a 10 seed go that far, but really I think just incredibly special when you consider like how much Steph was able to improve his draft stock. He went from a no name to a top 10 pick in the NBA draft just because of one run where it was, he was just electric the entire time. And and now he's Steph Curry. Yeah. Super underrated run. Um, crazy how much that ended up impacting his future. Cause he probably wouldn't have gotten drafted very highly if it wasn't for that. So wild stuff. My number four here, I have 14 seed Georgia state over Baylor. This one was just really fun and emotional for me. Uh, it was, uh, RJ Hunter who ended up going into the first round of the NBA draft, got drafted by the Boston Celtics. Um, and his dad, who was the coach at Georgia state for the Panthers beating up on a Baylor team that was also super talented. They just shot the lights out and it made RJ Hunter look like Steph Curry light for a while. He was making like half court shots from the logo all game long, super unexpected. And, uh, they, they lost shortly after that, but it, it was a fun run and RJ Hunter didn't last very long in the NBA, but that's the magic of March madness right there. Absolutely. Then at number three, you brought up Shaka smart earlier. The reason why he's, you know, such a highly touted coach was when he was at VCU just nonstop. If like there's like two or three years in a row, it felt like they were almost a lock as the Cinderella story to make the final four. Uh, they did it one time though. They, they were on 11, an 11 seed or a 12 seed, something just crazy make it to the final four no one's heard of them outside of virginia uh but those are the types of things that that actually make march what it is yeah and it's funny because like the only nba player on that team was troy daniels and during that run he only averaged two points per game like the the one guy who was like a top top tier level talent he didn't do squat and then a couple years after that they had mo alley cox who ended up being a colts tight end of all things so a, a weird team but a fun one My number three slot here, I I have the classic. It's impossible to have a top five list, I feel like, without having this team on here. That's Florida Gulf Coast, Dunk U, Dunk City, junking all over Georgetown, which is like one of the stuffiest old school type schools. They were a two seed, Georgetown was. Florida Gulf Coast was a 15 seed. And they they just dunked and alley-ooped all over Georgetown. And it was super fun to watch. Wrecked my bracket, but... It was impossible to be upset about it because of just how much fun Florida Gulf Coast was. So easy. Did, top did they end up making it to the Sweet 16? Like they, they won their next game and people were super hype on them. And then they got just trounced before the Elite Eight. Yeah, I think they beat uh, Florida in the second round, I want to say. And then they ended up getting yeah destroyed because they only dunked. They didn't know they couldn't. Right. Cause, but they were like that. so hyped because everyone was like they had like a whole week to get ready for FGCU again. Right. To your point being dunk city and then it was like a competent team was just like no you're not alley-ooping all over us and and just manhandled them yeah super fun run though Uh, they beat georgetown number seven san diego state and then they lost to florida so that was their run in 2013 okay uh so the mine's got to be butler and their back-to-back championship years that uh, unfortunately both times fell you have the the highlight of um, Gordon Hayward rimming out a half quarter that could have been the greatest moment in March Madness history uh, but I still think you can't just discredit how awesome it was to watch a, a really a mid-major team for a couple of years terrorize people's brackets. And, and you know, it made Brad Stevens a relevant name who is now a GM. It made Gordon Hayward have uh, just uh, this huge career in the NBA. Um, so th- those Butler teams are just very exciting teams to watch. 
Yeah, they had so many NBA players that ended up coming from those teams, like Shelvin Mack and such. And talk about one of the biggest what ifs in all of sports. It's like, damn, what if one of those shots would have gone in and Butler would have been a national champion? And it kind of sucks now because like they've kind of fallen off a little bit. They moved to the Big East and now they're kind of just like a mid-level team. But I hope they can kind of get back to that magic because, God, like having five seed Butler just wrecking people, it made no sense. It was super fun. So I miss those teams. My number two here is uh, a fun one. It hurt my bracket once again, but it was just so fun to watch that you couldn't really be mad about it. That's Lehigh over Duke. Lehigh was a 14 seed. Duke was a three seed. Duke had all the talent in the world. And Lehigh had this one little scrappy kid that kind of looks like a pterodactyl and CJ McCollum. And Lehigh just shot the lights out and beat Duke. And it was so much fun. A few more years after that, we had Mercer beat up on Duke. And that was also a fun one. But it is easily one of my favorite teams to watch. And they, they end up losing shortly after that. But they were just a sweet shooting team and made Duke look stupid. So fun, fun game. Yeah, and my number one has to be the run that George Mason made to the final four. Uh, you know, I've mentioned a few kind of like surprise high seeds that made it, but something special here, and they ruined my bracket, but the teams they had to beat to get to the final four as a no-name squad were Michigan State, North Carolina, Wichita State, when Wichita State was kind of on that unreal hot run that they had, and Connecticut, when Connecticut was like the second-ranked team overall in the tournament. Like they did not walk in with some lucky wins, lucky bids, et cetera. Like they did nothing but beat up on traditional blue buds in the, in the tournament and, and showed up to the final four and, and, you know, gave a good fight in the final four, but the, the magic kind of ended there. Yeah. That was, this was a little before I started watching college basketball. George Mason's run was, and I looking back on it, it's insane what they were able to do going all the way to the final four like that. Like, yeah, we've seen Loyola. Yeah, we've seen Wichita State, BC, whatever. But George Mason really feels like the original, like, out of nowhere team to make it happen. And they kind of paved the way for other mid-majors to make runs. So a super fun team. My number one, everybody probably knew what this was going to be. The Mizzou basketball hate has been off the charts for me lately. And it continues in this one here. And that's Norfolk State beating Mizzou. Mizzou was a two seed. Norfolk State was a 15 seed. This was before 15s being twos were really in vogue. And Norfolk State just destroyed Mizzou from start to finish. Mizzou had a super talented team, probably their most talented team in their entire history. The guys like Lawrence Bowers, Kim English, like literally a complete team one through eight rotation wise. And Norfolk State, little Norfolk State had one NBA level talent on their team. And that was Kyle O'Quinn who ended up playing for the magic and then the Knicks for a while and they just wrecked Mizzou's season which was a storybook type season right before that Mizzou was super hyped because they're about to remove the SEC and they're like oh yeah we're big and bad and then they just get embarrassed on a national stage and I'll never forget how much fun that day was because I had Mizzou losing like the next round anyway and all my friends who are Mizzou fans were devastated and I took a lot of uh took a lot of happiness from that so Mad Mac Mizzou hater, but you know, you, you gotta have it. I'm the same way with the university of Tennessee. I always would, would pick them to lose. Really? I didn't know you're a Tennessee yeah. hater. I think it's a Bruce Pearl thing. He, he kind of shit talked to you of, I got some, uh, um, you know, sanctions brought down on them back in the early two thousands. So no champagne native is a fan of Bruce Pearl. He was a Tennessee. We hate Tennessee and I just still hate the program. I, I didn't know you had that beef. So we're, we're all rooting for Florida Atlantic this Thursday, right? To beat Tennessee. Exactly. 
Nice. Okay, I'm all about it. I love this Owls team. So, all right. So those are our top five upsets. Let us know which ones you forgot we forgot and uh, which ones you would have on your list. So, Absolutely. all right. I, I don't have anything else, man. Do you? No, that's the podcast, man. Great week. Oh my goodness, we did it in under an hour and fifteen minutes. We're we're getting there. Efficiency, we are, man. We are a well-oiled machine. We're making it happen. Oh yeah. All right, you have a good one. <laughs>